We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you part two of our live event with psychologist Daniel Kahneman and Olivia Siboni, Professor of Strategy and Business Policy. In conversation with host Richie Lashar, they present their argument of how we can all make more intelligent decisions in an increasingly chaotic world. Part one of this event was released on our last episode and is available now to all our listeners. Do take a listen to that first if you can. Part three of this conversation is available exclusively to subscribers. This event took place in June 2022 in Union Chapel, London. I'm beginning to think that you think expertise is overrated. (laughs) Is it a concept we shouldn't even talk about? Expertise in the field. If you want us to say, oh, we've had enough of experts, we're not going to say that. Uh, No. There is an interesting question when you think about expertise, how we evaluate expertise. And this is that many of the judgments where we look at experts are actually unverifiable. That is, there are judgments that we make, like long-term forecasts, uh, which cannot be verified. And yet, so you would think that people who specialize in that kind of judgments, how do we know how to distinguish a good professional from a weaker professional? And there it turns out that there are ways for people to emerge as experts. We call them respect experts because they are experts because they are respected, not because of the quality of their performance, because their performance cannot be evaluated. So there were expert astrologers, and that is very useful to remember, that some astrologers had the respect of their peers, and they were taken more seriously than others, and they operated as experts. And what creates a respect expert is self-confidence, eloquence, intelligence, I mean, a lot of properties that we want, but they do not guarantee good performance. Good performance requires some verifiable criterion, some way, some feedback about the accuracy of the judgments that are made. Now, if you are a chess player, if you are a weather forecaster, if you are an investor, your expertise can be measured, can be assessed against objective benchmarks, and we can decide after a while that you are an excellent or a poor weather forecaster because we see how accurate you are. These are not the respect experts, they are the real experts. experts. So 
a fair chunk of the book is actually a sort of a how-to manual. And by that I mean you sort of say how to detect and reduce noise. Give us some pointers. If I decide this is a really bad thing, I want my decisions to be more efficient, to be more accurate. What do I do? So we've talked about algorithms, and the basic idea of algorithms is to say, as Danny pointed out, wherever there is human judgment, there is going to be noise. If you want there not to be noise, take out the human judgment. Let's put that aside because there's many situations where it's either impractical or undesirable for either good or bad reasons to use algorithms, and you will want to use human judgment. When you are going to use human judgment, the approach or the set of approaches we suggest to reduce noise in human judgment is what we call decision hygiene. And the reason we use this odd phrase is because the analogy of washing your hands is apt here. We, when we wash our hands, we are not saying, oh, this was this germ that I take out, and this is this disease that I've avoided. We don't know what problem we've avoided, we just know it's good prevention. We're putting the process under control. And decision hygiene does that. It puts the decision process, it puts the process of judgment under some sort of control. How do you do that? We've talked about aggregating independent opinions. That's a good way to introduce decision hygiene. Making sure these opinions are independent. If you aggregate opinions through discussion, as we pointed out, that actually does more harm than good. Another way would be to structure your decisions. Yet another way would be to use relative judgments rather than absolute judgments wherever you can. There's a whole series of things which taken together help introduce a little bit more discipline into your decision making. I should point out here that when we talk about noise reduction or about decision hygiene, we had, in writing the book, we had organizations in mind. But that the book is not self-help for individuals. I'm quite skeptical about the ability of individuals to improve their own thinking. But organizations have procedures. They have processes. It is possible, though it, this is not typical, that there's few organizations that I know about have designed processes for reaching judgments or decisions. But we believe that more organizations should have designs for making decisions and design that embodied or that incorporate the principles of decision hygiene. So organizations have an opportunity that individuals do not have. At the beginning, you, you described the underwriters at the insurance agency realizing how much noise there was. But is it an expensive process, a difficult process for, for organizations to undertake? Do you think there will be a reluctance to identify noise? Well, certainly, you know, in part because noise is so abstract. That is, you can point out to an error, to a single error, and it looks like a bias. And it's easy to explain, as Olivier was mentioning earlier. Noise, there is no single error unless it's a complete outlier. But normally, you cannot point to an error and say, this is noise. It takes more than one error. It takes the variability of errors. This gives noise that abstract sort of character mm -hmm. that makes it quite difficult to conceive of. And it is true that when you try to mitigate noise in an organization, you will certainly face resistance, and you will face resistance which in part is fully justified, because there is the danger of bureaucracy. There is the danger of imposing procedures that turn mechanical and that 
make people less involved in the judgments that they make. So there is really a trade-off between design decisions and spontaneous decisions, and it's up to individual organizations to find their way in that trade-off. And before you even get to noise reduction, just becoming aware of noise is something that some organizations, that many organizations, will resist, because noise is embarrassing. You know, we've talked about one problem of noise, which is that it's costly. We've talked about another, which is that it creates unfairness. There's a third reason why noise is detrimental, which is that it's embarrassing to the credibility of the organization. If in an insurance company, you become aware that you might get a quote for $100,000 and the next customer with exactly the same need might get a quote for $200,000, that doesn't reflect very well on the organization. And it's very tempting to move on and talk about something else. And I can tell you that this is what happened in the insurance company. <laughs> uh, they, they hadn't known about the problem, and once they were made aware of the problem, I think they forgot it very quickly. <laughs> But, but does that perhaps reflect, to come back to this idea of human agency, that the power to exercise discretion, it may be far less efficient, but actually within a company, within a hierarchy, it's a necessary trade-off. I'm the top dog, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to tell you. Well, it's, it's really very tempting. We had an interesting conversation yesterday with a very senior HR executive who said, you know, we read everything that you talk about and it's clear that it would improve the odds of hiring the best people. But as you point out yourself, hygiene is a bit tedious. It's much more fun to hire people I like. <laughs> and if that's what you're going to do, that's fine, it's your business. If I were your boss, I would probably raise some questions, but I'm not, so you do whatever. And, and there is another reason that really comes up, and that judgment is typically, and quite often, highly fallible. So for example, in hiring, real accuracy in hiring is impossible. It's impossible because future performance is not fully predictable. A lot of things are going to happen on the job that cannot be known in advance, that are not characteristics of the individual, and that will determine the individual's performance. So the best that you can do in hiring is quite poor, but you can do worse than that. And, and that people is, do. And, and people <laughs> do. But what you get as a response quite often, well, if all you can promise me is that performance will be quite poor, I might as well trust my gut. And that's a mistake. You talked about the fact that you don't want to see noise applied as a concept where we're talking about values. But what about creativity? I think about Steve Jobs, who one day decided, I don't want computers to look like a gray box. I want them to look like a curvy orange thing. And if you don't remember, just go and Google it. Some of you are probably a bit too young. Um, but if he was making decisions in a sort of more rigid structure, would he have done that? Would Apple have done that. He wouldn't, and he shouldn't make those kinds of decisions in that structure. We should be very clear about what types of things we call judgment. Our definition of judgment is very narrow. It's what Danny described when he said, it's treating your mind as a measuring instrument where you believe there is a single correct answer and you're trying to come as close as possible to that correct answer. That's what a doctor does when he gives a diagnosis. That's what you do when you make a forecast. That's what you do when you make an estimate of how likely someone is to be successful in a job. If you're trying to invent a new product, 
If you're trying to come up with a new solution to a problem that has baffled people for a long time and to get creative about it, if you're an artist, if you're a writer, if you're a poet, you know, you're not exercising what we call judgment. And you do want diversity in those kinds of things. You do want divergence in those kinds of things. And in the example of product innovation, the reason you want divergence is because variation is going to be followed by selection. The reason we celebrate Steve Jobs as a genius is because his innovations worked. Lots of people launched products that did not. And the reason we can actually tell the successful ones from the unsuccessful ones is because there was a lot of variation followed by selection. The problem of organizations and the problem of judgment as we define it in organizations is that when there is variation, there is no selection. It is variation without a process of deciding who is right and who is wrong. So it's basically what we call noise. You know, noise in a way, the engine of evolution, I mean, it's variability, random variability is the engine of evolution because there is selection, because there is feedback. And what we're really talking about is that very narrow, specific process where there is no feedback and where judgments should be identical. And, and it's very narrow, but I, we, we have to emphasize this. It's very narrow, but it's also very, very frequent. In our professional lives, we have many more situations that are situations of judgment, as we define it here, than situations of creativity, as you pointed out, do exist. Right? How often did Steve Jobs make one of those big bets on a new product, and how many times did he decide to hire someone to make a forecast for how successful a product would be, to decide at what price to set the price of a new product? You know, we all make a lot more judgments as we define them than big, bold, divergent calls. I think we should add something about diversity. Because even when the object of an organization says to reach a judgment, and say to reach a judgment by a group, for a group to reach a judgment, you actually want diversity in the group. Not too much, but there is an optimal amount of diversity that is absolutely desirable. And you actually want diverse opinions initially, but you do want a process that will converge to a judgment, to an agreed judgment, that is both less noisy and less biased than the original judgment. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. And you've made it clear that you don't think this is something that you want necessarily to apply to individuals. It's not a self-help book, as you said. But do you think there is a difference in the way we can think about noise, both in the sort of uh, the, the public sector, in institutions, if you like, and within business? Is there a difference in how it would be used? Does it make a difference that businesses are thinking about profits and I don't baselines? think so, really. I, don't, I see no reason why there should be a difference. You know, there is a criterion. Any organization, be it for profit or other, has some measure of success, has something that it's trying to achieve, and there is a measure of performance. And noise is detrimental, equally detrimental, regardless of what the organization is trying to achieve. And the conversations that we repeatedly have nowadays about social media and the way that that's polarizing our debate, to go back to another thing that we, we have spoken about, do you think that in a way we're encouraging noise because the way in which we talk to one another, the way in which we raise issues and discuss ideas has become so much more fractious, for want of a better word? I think what you're talking about here is bias, not noise. Right. We, we are encouraging bias. We're creating those echo chambers Balance. within which we are amplifying the opinions of people who agree with us. That's a big amplifier of bias. Whether or not it creates more noise is not completely clear to me, but it certainly does amplify bias. Do you see then this being taken up as an idea by businesses? You've already said that people see it as something they'd rather not think about, but how do you give them that sense of urgency and get them perhaps to think about this rather more clearly? Well, it's important for an organization to realize that when judgments are being made on behalf of the organization, you want those judgments to be made well. And judgments to be made well have to be accurate, and accuracy demands reduction in both bias and noise. You know, this is basic. So, and it's just the recognition that bias is not the only form of noise. In the public discussion of error, and there's a lot of public discussion of error, the word bias is almost synonymous. The word error and bias, they're, they're almost synonyms. But what we are pointing out is that actually there is another type of error, which is a neglected error, and that's noise. When you were discussing this with organizations, there is an analogy that sometimes works, which is if you're making products, 
you can control the quality of those products as they come off the production line. But you know, after a while, you realize that you've got to put the process under control, and that what guarantees the quality of the output is the quality of the process. And if you think of your organization, whatever else it makes, it makes a lot of decisions. It makes a lot of judgments. Whatever it produces, it's a machine for producing decisions. Putting the process of making those decisions under control, reducing the variability of that process, can only be a good thing. But just to be a little bit annoying, really, if noise is such, a, such an issue, why do we have successful organizations, successful businesses? Do you think the most successful businesses are those that have eliminated noise? Well, you know, if all organizations are noisy, I mean, I, the insurance company where I did my research is quite a successful insurance company. Precisely. I think it is competing with other noisy organizations. Uh, and so I don't think that it's uniquely noisy. If there is noise everywhere, it's not going to be a factor in competition. Reducing noise would be advantageous in a competitive situation. And course. in many areas, when one obvious one is investment professionals, they read the book and they say, oh, it looks like an opportunity for competitive advantage here. If everybody else is noisy, and we are, and if we can become a little less noisy, then we might make slightly better decisions. They are never going to be perfect, just like the hiring decisions. They are made under uncertainty, but if we can get a small edge, that might have a big impact. And is there a way to calculate? Or could you point to an organization and say, look, they've got this right, that their noise is minimum? Well, we recommend first for an organization, measure noise. Become aware of the problem and measure it. And noise is actually easy to measure. Noise audits are easy, relatively. And they're easy because you do not have to know the correct answer in order to measure variability. So to take the analogy that Olivier was mentioning earlier, shooting at a target, if you look at the back of the target, you don't know where the bullseye is. So you have no idea of whether there is bias in the shooting. What you do know, just as well as if you were looking at the front of the target, is variability. So noise is, in a way, much easier to measure and identify than biases in many situations. That is, by eliciting judgments on problems where you don't know the correct answer, you can invent the problem. But the variability, if the problems are representative, the variability will be real and will be an indication of how much variability there is on the job. This is number one. After that, you will probably discover there is more noise than you expected. And then what you do with it, and facing resistance, facing all sorts of organizational obstacles, that's the next step. The first step is conduct noise audits. And as Denny started mentioning earlier, there is a trade-off there, right? I mean, you, you certainly do not want to eliminate all the noise. You want to know how much there is. You might want to reduce it if it's costly. Maybe it's not, right? If, you know, if you come to my school department and you look at my grading, you're going to find that my grading is noisy. And the answer would be have two or three or five or 10 different professors grade each essay and take the average of those 10 grades. Is it worth it? Absolutely not, right? It's not worth the cost. So it's a very important question in each situation whether the cost of reducing noise is warranted by the benefit. And that's something you should ask on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes the cost will be the sort of direct cost that I'm talking about. 
Sometimes it will be the cost in possible demotivation and loss of a sense of agency, which you talked about earlier, which you've got to be very careful about as well. So we need to be sensitive to those dimensions. We're not saying that noise should always be reduced everywhere at all costs. Right. First, it's impossible. Second, it's probably not desirable. We should be careful about that. You know, when averaging is possible, averaging is the optimal way of reducing noise. Averaging a number of independent judgments is guaranteed to reduce noise. We know exactly by what amount. It's simply a function of the number of observations that you obtain. So what is called wisdom of the crowd, quite mistakenly, what the crowd is guaranteed to do is it produces noise. But a crowd is not necessarily wise because averaging does not necessarily reduce bias. In fact, averaging does not eliminate bias. It does not reduce bias. It only reduces noise. So when averaging is too costly, for example, think of the patent office, you could not really put two offices on every patent. It would just double the cost, effectively, of the operation. Then what you have to do is to try to make patent offices more interchangeable, more similar to each other, so that counterfactually, if another patent officer had looked at the same problem, then very likely he or she would have made a similar decision. Fascinating. Well, I hope that all of our organizations are going to make better decisions with less noise. It is my time to come over to you. If you're in the hall and you'd like to ask a question, please come down to the mics at the front. I'm going to get going, actually, because we do have a few online questions whilst you guys get going here. Sarah says, are there any ways in which thinking fast and slow tells us anything about noise. Are people who use system one thinking, system one thinking more susceptible to noise? Also, how can noise be applied to politics? Now, we talked about that a little bit. Aren't our leaders incentivized to create noise? If we start with those two, Daniel, do you want to go first, given that we're talking about thinking fast and slow? Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squad. The third and final part of this conversation is exclusively available for our subscribers. You can access all episodes ad-free now. This event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com.